All right, we are, uh, we're good to go with our sound, and uh, if you have your Bibles in your hand, then um, I would like to direct your attention to Hebrews chapter 12. We are beginning a new chapter, Hebrews 12. I'm very excited. We have finished chapter 11, and what a wonderful chapter that was. The writer provided us with a role of champions of righteousness who live by faith in the promises of God's future blessing. Hopefully that came through. That was a recurring theme. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Rahab, and many more unnamed but not unknown to this first century audience and to us. The people in this role were banking on a better country with their, where they held citizenship. And it was tied, of course, to Messiah who would bring it to fruition in God's sovereign timetable by his work of redemption and resurrection and exaltation. And whether it came in their lifetime or not didn't matter. We saw that. They kept their eye on it all the time. They also lived by the light of God's promise that was not as bright as it eventually had become and it is for us today. But it was enough for them to remain loyal. And we posed then at the very end of chapter 11 two questions at at that point, how much more loyal can we live by faith in difficult times now that we live in the full and complete light of the gospel? How much more responsible are we to live that way than the champions of old? Those are right questions, I think, to ask the first century congregation of believers who were floundering in their holy calling, who were growing weary, weary and slacking off. They were slowing way down in the race. Their perseverance was faltering. They were finding it too arduous, too strenuous. And so they, they looked to the Essene community to even help them alleviate their stress. Some contemplated giving up and giving up altogether, which really demonstrated that they were never true contestants in the race, true believers, but were still, were those who were genuine, but were going to other sources than to Jesus for strength and inspiration. As Hughes explains in his commentary in Hebrews, the audience of this letter, quote, set out running well, but then slacked off. They decreased in their effort, sin started holding them back, and they needed to recover their intensity of their purpose to take off the sluggish mood, to regain their confidence and, and their competitive spirit, end quote. So the two questions, again, that we posed at the end of chapter 12, and the ones that this writer actually intimates to this very weak congregation, they're rhetorical questions, of course. The answers to both were not only obvious to the first century church, we can do much better and we are more responsible than the Old Testament champions, but they're designed, you see, to call lazy, apathetic, fearful, timid Christians to action. That's why we asked them when we did at the end of chapter 11. They say, hey, listen, you can do better. You can do better. You, you must do better. You're more than conquerors. You're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, heirs of a great inheritance, beloved of God, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And you say, yes, 
Yes, I, I understand that. I know where all of those are found. I've read them many times over, but what do I do when I don't feel like more than a conqueror or a, vali or a valiant warrior? When I feel more like a weak and timid captive? When we carry on enslaved to riches of this world, acting as if we have no guarantee from God of a great inheritance or when we're not ruling and subduing that part of the earth that God has entrusted to our care, acting as if we have no ruling status with Christ in heaven, what do we do when we feel this way and we behave this way and we carry on like this? The, the writer answers. He answers it this way. He tells us in no uncertain terms in another of his very famous admonitions that he now gives this floundering congregation in typical pastoral fashion. And that's what we have in chapter 12. The answer. The answer to this. Now our English Bibles begin a, a new chapter here, but grammatically, chapter 12, verse 1, is a continuation of chapter 11. And we know that because it begins with therefore, which in this case ties all of chapter 11 to what the writer is going to say now. Now we don't have to change the chapter divisions. I'm not suggesting that. Just be aware of the close relationship between them. And the relationship is causal. Causal. Because of this, this. This is what I mean by causal. So the contents of chapter 11 are meant to produce or cause the kind of action called for in chapter 12. So verse 1 argues this way. The writer says, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us rid every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And the fact that the writer makes a reference to a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, which is obviously a reference to those champions that he just finished talking about in chapter 11, proves that this is a causal relationship between these two chapters. The ideal is let them encourage you. That's the ideal uh, uh, expression, causal relationship. The writer says, let them encourage you. And before we go on to, to explore that further, one of the inescapable truths of this section is certainly that we can gain a great deal of encouragement from the past lives of saints who ran well the race of faith. We can, and we should. The New Testament catalogs these people all over the place for this very reason. You might remember that the Apostle Paul made this point in two places in his epistles. In Romans 15, verse 4, he says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. So we're going to have hope in what, in what has been left for us in the record of scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, he does the same thing. He says, now these things happened to them as examples that and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. What we have recorded in the Old Testament was written specifically for our instruction. So God has preserved for us and for our encouragement examples of past champions who lived in all kinds of difficult situations and came through because of their faith in what God would do. Joseph encourages us to rest in God's sovereignty
Because whatever evil one may, one may do to you, God means it for your good. David encourages us to be confident in our spiritual battles because the battle is the Lord's. And no matter how giant our problems seem, we can vanquish them in Christ who fights for us. That's David. Joshua and Caleb encourage us to live by faith and not by sight. And even unrighteous Israel can be an encouragement to us to live obedient lives. Thanks to them, we know the devastating effects of presumptuous sin that kept an entire generation wandering in the wilderness until they died. We learn that obedience is better than sacrifice, courtesy of King Saul. As the writer of Hebrews calls to mind the spiritual exploits, specifically of these Old Testament champions. He calls them witnesses. Now, there are some commentators, you should know, that understand this word witnesses as describing the deceased cadre of spiritual warriors in chapter 11 as spectators that surround us and cheer us on in our spiritual race, like those fans once did in the great Olympic Games in Greece. They say that this is the most natural understanding in light of the Olympic race metaphor that the writer uses. So I would argue differently. I don't really agree with that, because the New Testament gives us no indication that the believers who are now in heaven actually observe us much less are caught up with what we're doing here. I don't find that really anywhere, nor does it teach that they are cheering us on. Besides, the benefit of fans who cheer us on is to hear them cheer us on, right? What good is cheering when you can't hear it? No good, good at all. So I would say that there, if there is anything about them that encourages us, or cheers us on, it's the historical account of their valiant life of faith in spiritual warfare, as does the fact of their status in heaven now after having finished the course. All of that's very encouraging. And it's with that understanding that I would submit to you that witnesses in this context do not refer to those who watch us but those who have testified by their lives that living by faith works. Works. You need to remember that that important truth the next time that you endure a trial, that living by faith works. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that trials are common. They're not unique. Thousands upon thousands of believers have endured what you are enduring and have come through them victorious because they applied God's truth. God's word works. Living by faith in his promises works. Okay, so what is the admonition to us specifically then as we focus our attention back on this wonderful text? You'll find it summed up with two verbs in this verse, in verse 1, two verbs that sum up the admonition. And I will summarize them this way. Rid and run. Rid and run. That's right. We might condense verse 1 this way. Therefore, since we have God's witnesses to the fact that living by faith does indeed work, rid and run. Run. 
Now, before I expound on those two action words, we, can, we be, can we be clear that there's no secret to living the victorious life in Christ? Can we be clear about that? I want to make sure we're on the same page. There's no special knowledge outside the Bible owned by some spiritual guru who claims to have new revelation from God that you need to know that only he has, and you need to go to him in order to get it. Now, there's nothing sensational and miraculous that has to happen to you after conversion either in order to accomplish spiritual victory. No secrets, nothing complicated, nothing mystical. It's all very clear and very simple. Nothing like that stuff at all. Victory in holy war, overcoming temptation, resisting the devil, winning spiritual skirmishes. It all comes by trusting God enough to listen to his word, to obey biblical commands and biblical principles, to rest in his promises of future blessing for his people. That's it. And it's not complicated. That's chapter 11. And chapter 11 confirms that. And that it's always been the way for God's people since the very beginning. And here in verse 1, the writer has made the application of that truth simple for us with these two verbs, rid and run. Victorious Christian living calls for discipline, diligence, tenacity, relentlessness, stick-to-itiveness in two areas of the fight or the race. And those two areas are rid and run. Okay, so what is ridding all about? The Greek verb means to put off, means to put aside, which describes in the, described in the first century something that a person gives up. When somebody puts something off, he gave it up. It was gone. And when you have nothing more to do with something in your life, you were said to have put it off. Today, we would say, well, I got rid of it. It's gone. And I need to explain to you that this analogy of the famous Olympic Games in Greece is an effective one for the first century audience. They would have known that the Olympic runners then never carried any extra weight when they ran. If they wanted to run to win. No extra weight. They put it off. So, for example, anatomically, that's our bodies... They had low percentage of body fat. They were lean. You cannot expect to, to run well if you're overweight. can't happen. More than that, it's a known fact that they would run in the nude so that nothing would encumber them or tangle them up. And if that's not motivation enough to run faster, I don't know what is. <laughs> now keep in mind, this is just an analogy. Please don't think that you have to have a 1% body fat to live sterling Christian lives. And of course, it also goes without saying that you will do a better job of it if you keep your clothes on. We're not talking, we are talking figuratively here. The writer uses the word rid in the analogy of running well the race of faith to say that we spiritual runners need to constantly make sure to rid ourselves of anything in our lives that will slow us down in the race. That's really what he's saying. Don't carry around anything that drags you down. Get rid of it. Put it off. What, that, what, what, what might that be? Well, the verse identifies two hindrances to running well the race of faith. Let's begin with the most obvious 
first, and then we'll work our way to the second, which is really the first in the verse. Are you confused yet? Sin is the second of the two mentioned in verse 1, and I want to start with that first, sin. He mentions the sin that so easily entangles us. Now, that word translated entangles has the idea of distraction, distracts us. Sin certainly distracts us. It derails us, reroutes us, takes us, takes us way out of our, our route, takes the wind out of our sails, does all these things, can stop us dead in our tracks. Sins are like detours, beloved, on the narrow way that leads us to dead ends. They slow us up. Everything comes to a grinding halt sooner or later because of carrying around unconfessed sin. I'm sure that's been your experience. It's been mine. Everything comes to a grinding halt sooner or later. Got to take care of it. Did for David. Read Psalm 51. You'll see. The call here is to rid ourselves of sin. If we sin, we need to take care of that immediately. Immediately. Or it'll drag us down. It'll slow us up in the race. For some who have taken no measures to repent of it immediately but carry it around, they have reduced their run to a slow walk. And others of them have even stopped and and even lost ground on the narrow way. Put it off. Get rid of it. Shed it as fast as you can. Be responsible to take care of sin in your life by repentance and change. That's how we deal with sin. It's the only way. Now, I want to say also, ridding sin implies avoiding it too. We don't want to wait until we sin in order to then have to work at getting it out of our lives, right? We know from the rest of the New Testament that temptation to sin comes, from, comes at us from all around by the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's always present, always there tempting. You know, you, you don't have... you you you. you, you You run this race, but you don't run a race by competing with other believers, right? You know that. This is not that kind of race. The race we run is against the forces of sin in our lives. That's what we're running, this race. Take every precaution not to sin. It's also in the context of running the race of faith that Paul also speaks of putting to death the lusts of the flesh in his own life, making sure that he has mastery of his own body. You can read that in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9, so that he might prove himself genuine. Now, there's one last thing that you need to see from the text that's easily missed. The writer says, the sin. Do you see that? The sin. That is so, that so easily entangles us. Now, some are of the opinion that... Um, that the use of the definite article here with sin means that the writer is referring to the sin of pride or covetousness, which is what Adam's sin was. He wanted something for himself at the expense of pleasing God. Now, there's not enough in the context to confirm this, but I would say that the definite article here does point to the specific sin in each of our lives that tangles us up in the race at any given time. In other words, whatever the sin is that is keeping you from running well, that is a sin that you need to deal with. It's keeping you from running straight. It it, it has you in circles. 
and you're losing ground. What is the sin right now in your life that has become your central weakness and is dragging you down, weighing you down, slowing you down? Identify it, kill it, repent of it, change and train yourself never to sin that same sin over again so you can pick up the pace and run the race of faith. Now that's one of two encumbrances that can tangle us up and slow us down. It's the most obvious. That's why I began with it first. Now we work backwards to the second one. And it is obstacles. That's what the other is. Not so obvious to us, but it's just as detrimental to running well. It's the first one mentioned in the verse. Let's rid ourselves of every obstacle. The Greek word translated obstacle means weight. Just basically a weight. And something that weighs us down is burdensome. Now, obstacles are not sins specifically. These these are not the same. Obstacles and sins are not the same. But they can become sins when, they, when we allow them to impede our ministry or our running. For example, Paul says bodily training is just slightly beneficial, but godliness is beneficial for all things since it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. Now that order of priority is one that we should display in our lives. We should take care of ourselves. We should exercise. Absolutely. But we don't want to mix up the priorities. Do you devote as much, if not more, time to ministry and church-related activity than you do to physical exercise? Great question. If we don't, then then it has become an obstacle to godly living. And And it'll only weigh us down in the race. And it can become sinful. Having family, business, recreation and the like at proper times in the proper ways is acceptable to God, yes. But if they interfere with obeying God as we should or living our Christian lives as we should, then they become weights and we have to lay them aside. So we remove any obstacles and sins that cling so closely to us. I want to say that the writer here tells us basically what to take off. And that's the excess weight of obstacles and, of course, sin that is sure to slow us up. And the rest of the New Testament tells us the same thing, to put off. Peter says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Paul would would say, um, well, actually, he gives a huge list of, of sins to put away. Among them would be anger and wrath and malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And Jesus even warned us, Luke 21, 34, but watch yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that, and that the day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Watch yourself. Don't be weighed down by those things, Jesus says. And maybe you didn't realize that the New Testament also tells us what to put on in order to run better. Hmm, isn't that interesting? That's right. Only in the spiritual race can we actually put something on in order to run faster. And I can see you're intrigued. What is that? Well, Paul says to put on Christ, to put on compassion, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, Colossians 3. Put on love, Paul says. Those things help us to run well. 
Bottom line is that we need to rid ourselves of anything that would keep us from, from showing ourselves approved as spiritual athletes and put on Christ. So ridding is part of the application of living by faith. Okay, you're not feeling like a more than conqueror, as a, like a, 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 a valiant warrior. You actually feel more like a weak and subdued captive. What do I do? You need to rid. That's the first part. Second part is run. Run. You need to run. And let us run, the writer says, with endurance, the race that is set before us. What's so obvious here about the Christian life is that it demands quite a bit of energy, doesn't it? Thinking, wisdom, circumspection, prayer, and forward motion. So many are stagnant in their Christian lives and they don't realize it. Some are even losing ground and they, they're given all kinds of excuses by church leaders, no less, that somehow it's okay to feel this way. It's okay to be this way. As if limping along rather than running is, is either not our fault or not our responsibility. Nothing could be farther from the truth. And any lack of desire to run to win is unacceptable to God, beloved. You run to win. Otherwise, why, do you, why are you even in the race? Right? You run to win. The writer speaks of the faith in terms of a race, and that means, again, forward motion, and in an aggressive, energetic, and powerful way. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's a long-distance, cross-country run that calls for wise running pacing ourselves, being prepared for all kinds of terrain. It's not all a straightaway. And I want to show you something that may have escaped your notice. It's very important. Aside from the fact that we Christians need to recognize that we are in a race, which seems to be half the battle for American Christians, we also need to recognize that our course... Are you ready for this? This is phenomenal. It comes right out of the text. Our course has been appointed to us by the Lord himself. I just love that. I paused over that for several hours the past couple of weeks. The verse says, run with endurance the race that is set before you. Right? That, the call is to run with endurance this race. Now, I want you to hold that thought because we have to talk a little bit about endurance here perseverance. It's an essential quality to have all believers who run the race of faith or fight the, fa fight, the fight of faith. We, we will not fare well without endurance, without persecution. We have to develop it. It is a, a discipline to maintain. It is a stick to a relentlessness, a consistency of application. We all know this and we practice it in other areas of our lives when we deem it to be either necessary or enjoyable, right? You have a job, and you'll be there, you'll work, you'll mind the rules, you'll respect the lunch hour, and you don't abuse the quitting time, and you get paid. You also make it a point to get there, to get enough sleep, to, get, to dress for the occasion, and when it comes to play something enjoyable, like our hobbies, we put forth the same effort, if not more, to cultivate them, right? The Christian life demands this kind of endurance, this kind of perseverance. It's at the 
Same time, the most arduous and the most enjoyable life there is, so it demands that we keep on keeping on in our spiritual disciplines. Prayer, Bible study, sharpening each other, one another, worshiping God, practicing the sacraments, and so on. Now, what cultivates this endurance? What keeps us keeping on? Because there's a lot that we encounter that can discourage us. And I said that it's the fact that the Lord has set this race, this course for us. This is what feeds our energy, what keeps us from waning and slacking off. A firm conviction that God has set your course. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Is that something you even think of? This is not some kind of, of haphazard race or something that you arbitrarily, arbitrarily decided to fall into. This has been set for you. God has called us to the race, and he's mapped out our individual routes to glory. You have one. I have one. Every Christian has a route specifically laid out by our loving and good sovereign that he has deemed the best route that will bring each of us from conversion to glory. You couldn't do any better. No, the best route he has chosen for each of us. We all Christians, we all of us, run in the same race, yes, toward the same end, yes, but we each have different courses in it. And it is vital to run well, to running well, to know what God ordained for you, your specific course, just as much as he has ordained the race itself. So when a Christian despises his specific run, resists going the way God has ordained him to go, manufactures excuses not to, to be always on the move toward righteousness, he really rejects God's lot for him. When we say, well, I don't like running in the dark, or up the hill, or on a bumpy terrain, or through puddles, through woods, or valleys, especially valleys, we're saying that we don't receive God's will for our lives, his lot for us. You're not a thankful runner, but rather you are a contrary and complaining one that will not run well. It's so important for Christian morale our morale, to know that we, that what we run, in all kinds of terrain, and all kinds of weather, God has called us to run, and he has specifically and lovingly mapped out our, a course for each one of us. And we, each of us, must believe with confidence that his course for us is the best possible one that will get us from conversion to glory. You have to believe that. Do you believe that? You must. 2 Corinthians 4.1, the apostle Paul uses this argument as a major way to motivate the Corinthians not to give up because of hardships in their Christian life. You know this verse. Here's what he says. Therefore, since we have this ministry as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. What's he mean? The meaning of this verse is powerful. It teaches that this ministry, one that is filled with all kinds of persecutions and trials and hardships, comes to us tailor-made by the merciful hand of God 
And that is the reason we don't lose heart. We have this ministry. It's a ministry. What a remarkable truth. Our ministries, our courses in life, our race of faith as parents and spouses and citizens, as employees or entrepreneurs, as students, as children, whatever our station in life, we can be sure that God has ordained it and set it before us to run with all the peaks, with all the valleys, including all the triumphs and all the tragedies. All of it. And that divinely packaged course that makes up our individual races is a stroke of God's mercy. How is running through a valley or through a storm or a desert in my life a stroke of God's mercy? Someone might ask. <laughs> Simply because he could have given you what you deserve. Instead, he showed you mercy and gave you an honorable ministry that, yes, involves temporary hardship, that pale, though, insignificance to the internal condemnation that we all deserve. Therefore, don't give up. Rejoice and run the race because the hardships will end and usher in an eternal weight of glory. Now, we've talked about ridden run. In order to overcome that weak feeling of, of overcomed captives, let me talk a little bit of our incentive to rid and run. Now, we just got finished talking about God's ordained track for us, and that truth, that truth is, is a powerful incentive as is Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 4.1. But as powerful as an incentive as that is, he does give us another one that's just as powerful. And we're not surprised at this. Scripture has numerous incentives for Christians to live godly lives. So what is this other incentive that we have? We already know God has ordained our course, which means we ought to run it. Well, it's in verses 2 and 3. And I want to take that portion in sections. But I would say that our incentive is Christ himself, looking only at Jesus, the originator or the pioneer and perfecter of the faith. Grammatically speaking, verse 2 provides the manner in which we are to run, rid and run well. We are to rid and run while looking. That's manner. That's how we run. We run by looking looking to Jesus. That's the way that you are to rid and run, looking where you're going. Not like kids, you know, how kids run a lot of times, not looking where they're going. Before it's too late, they run into a wall or fall into a ditch or they run in the wrong direction. No, we, we need to look where we're running to, where we ultimately want to be. We want to be with Christ. We look to him, seated at the right hand, of God the Father. The writer identifies Jesus as then the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We're, we've considered Jesus as our pioneer before back in chapter 2 verse 10 where it says Jesus the pioneer of their salvation. The Greek word pioneer is rendered by the New King James as captain, the ESV as founder, which is really the same as the New American Standard Bible, author, 
And these translations are acceptable for this word in other contexts, but not really here for Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 12 is not, not acceptable for this, these contexts. They both lack the important element that the writer wants us to know about Jesus, if he is to be our incentive. While, while it's no doubt true that Jesus is our captain, he is our head, whom we must obey, the founder and author of our faith, yes and amen. The writer emphasizes more the actions of someone who goes on ahead of us, who is the first one to run the track, to make it all the way to the finish line and into the very throne room of God. He paved the way for us. The Lord Jesus Christ was a trailblazer, a pioneer, in that he did what no one ever did before or since. He went where no one could go before or since. I'm referring to his great work of salvation. The writer of Hebrews points us to the salvation of human souls and the pioneering work of the Lord Jesus Christ there in that area. He was the first among humans to endure great suffering of every kind, die, rise from the dead, and then ascend to heaven in a glorified body. He trailblazed the way to glory and then perfected those who will follow him. Who better, who else would we possibly look to as our pioneer? No one. No one. He's also the perfecter of our faith. He is the one that prayed for us that we would come to faith in him. Do you remember John 17? He prayed for each of us that our faith may not fail. As a perfecter of our faith, Jesus is the man of faith par excellence. His entire life was the embodiment of trust in God. So there is no one else that can show us the way and how to run it well. The writer describes the way Jesus looked ahead to the promise of God's future blessing. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus came to run his own individual course that God the Father ordained for him, just like he ordained for us. At the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born of, uh, under the law, to die for the sins of God's elect, to save them by paving, paying God's penalty for sin. He conquered death by rising from the dead and now sits at God's right hand. Jesus knew the entire plan and in his humanity where he felt the weight of temptation upon himself. He becomes anxious about being separate from the Father in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. As his time drew near, he showed us how to run. He set his sights on the joy before him. What is that joy? Well, generally speaking, it was everything that would come to fulfillment through the cross work and resurrection. The pleasing of the Father, the conquering of death, the saving of the elect. Specifically, it was the joy of being an in an exalted position with the Father once again, and giving the church an exalted position at the end of history. Point here is that Jesus knew that God's will for, what God's will for him was, his ordained course to run in this great race of faith. He knew it was going to be extremely difficult, more than the 
than the experience of anyone before or after him. His strong desire was to fulfill it because he knew how it would end. He ran with his eyes focused on the end. Is this not what the writer of Hebrews has been arguing all throughout chapter 11? Is this not the way he calls us to run? Looking to Jesus becomes our greatest source of encouragement. As Stephen did the moment of his death, focused on Christ, who was his goal and prize, so focused that nothing around him mattered, nor was he cognizant of anything. Paul shared the same attitude, considering all rubbish for the surpassing riches of Christ. Let me focus your attention on the phrase, despise the shame. What does it mean, and why is it something worth noticing? The shame here is obviously being being hanged naked on a cross as a spectacle for all to see. Death by crucifixion was reserved, you know, for the worst of humanity, the worst. The worst there was. Even the most vile criminal who was a Roman citizen would never be crucified because they were too good for that kind of death. It was an embarrassment, an embarrassing end to endure, to be sure, but Jesus endured it for a noble cause, to please the Father and to save God's people. It was also the way to glory and exaltation. He therefore embraced it. The road to joy was the way of the cross. If we endure, Paul says, we shall also reign with him. 2 Timothy 2.12 Therefore Jesus was not embarrassed in the slightest to fulfill God's will this way. And if we look to Jesus as we rid and run, to Jesus our pioneer who shows us the way, we too can learn to despise the shame that so often is associated with running the race of faith. We can overcome the shame of obedience that that seems to deter many Christians from running well. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Jesus before warned would-be followers, you remember, everyone who confesses me before people, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before people, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. One of the sins that so easily entangles spiritual runners, beloved, is the fear of man. Now that's when we regard how people think of us more than how God thinks of us. Peter and John were warned, if you remember, indeed threatened, not to preach in the name of Jesus in Jerusalem, or they would face beatings and imprisonment. Peter spoke up and he replied, we must fear God rather than man, do what you want. Whatever situations we face in our ordained courses to glory, we should welcome it as a challenging opportunity to minister and proclaim our great God. There's no room on God's ordained course for self-pity. No room for fearing man. No room for regretting obedience. Like Peter and John, we should consider it a privilege to suffer on the course for the name of Christ. It's a way forward in our maturity and in our efforts to praise the Lord in word and deed. And when it's over, 
When the sojourn on earth is finished, we enter the Lord's rest completely. And now more than any of the champions of old, Jesus stands out as being our divine role model in this, doesn't he? So the writer in verse 3 says, Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Construction of the verse is undeniable. The command is to consider Jesus as the, the only one that we are to model ourselves after. Why? Because of the terrible terrain God had ordained for him to run. Far worse, as we said, than anyone has ever or will ever endure. And because that's true, it's a historical fact, Jesus is our model, our ultimate model, the divine model. He is our greatest encouragement. That's why the writer presents us with Jesus as the quintessential runner, so that we will not grow weary or lose heart. The idea is if Jesus can do this, we can too in him. And what we have going for us that Jesus didn't is Jesus himself. We don't run alone. He did. He ran alone. And he was forsaken by the Father. Two things that will never happen to us. We don't run alone. We may have our individual courses ordained by God to run, but we run after Christ who has blazed the trail ahead of us and even now with us is with us as we run. As, in the, as, as is the indwelling Holy Spirit who keeps us persevering to the end. Remember the intent of God the Father? Philippians 1.6, the one who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ. The entire Trinity, beloved, is on our side. Who better to look to Jesus? Why not only run the course? We not only run the course but we run after somebody who has run it first, has marked out our steps, and now accompanies us as we race. How much should we consider our great pioneer of the faith who faced the humiliation of the cross because it was God's will for him to do so and couldn't care less that it was a shameful way to go? If we look at anyone else or even to ourselves, there will be a tendency to become spiritually weary and discouraged, even embarrassed. What is essential in persevering in a race such as ours is that we have the goal clearly in view. It is to reach Jesus who waits for us on the other side. We've all engaged in Follow the leader as kids, I trust. We're all old enough to have remembered that game. I don't know what they do today, but that's what we did back then. I think it's better than video games, actually. Playing, a player's chose a leader, and then they all lined up behind the leader, and then the leader moves around, and all the players have to mimic the leader's actions. The Lord has led the way for us in righteousness, and we are called to imitate him in our race. He knows the obstacles that we must overcome. He knows how difficult it is. He knows that we're going, what we're going through as we run. He knows what we can stand, what is best for us, and what we need to cross the finish line. He will see 
that we complete our race, he will see us through to the end. We need to learn not only how to run like Christ, this course that he has run and now calls us to run, one that he especially created for us, but we must despise any shame that is associated with it, not allowing those who try to shame us in our fight or in our race to slow us down. Keep your eyes on Christ. He is our goal. He's our model. The hymn, The Heavenly Vision, written by Helen Lemmel, put it rather well and simply, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And all the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And they will. I don't always like to mix metaphors. But in this case, it might help us as we bring this to a close this morning. We've all talked about running a race, which is the writer's figure. I might change the image in your mind to home run. But there are two images I want to paint in your mind with that figure. The one that comes readily to your mind, of course, is a base runner in baseball that makes it from home plate back to home plate by hitting a ball out of the park. But many times, the runner makes, makes it home due to a series of errors Made by, other made by those on the other team in their efforts to throw them out at one or more of the bases. Now that kind of home run, even though it's a, a home run by error, is almost more exciting to watch and certainly just as satisfying, if not more, to the runner than if he had hit the ball out of the park. Why? Because he had to work hard for it. He had to run cautiously, circumspectly, wisely, patiently, but also aggressively and with alacrity and anticipation from base to base. It called for all of his experience and training. Most importantly, all he wants is to come home. He wants it badly, and the taste for crossing home plate intensifies as he advances the bases. When he gets there, He's cheered on and welcomed by his team and his coach. Now take all the runner's hard work and application, all his anticipation and watchfulness, and all his mounting exhilaration that culminates when he comes home, and transfer it to your race for home, your run for home. This is the other image I want you to have. Our run is a home run in the sense that it is a run for our home. And we should run it the same way, with wise application of God's word, dependence upon God's Holy Spirit, and with our eyes on the one who mapped out our course after running it himself and now accompanies us on the route, Jesus our Lord. He's waiting just as much as we are for our arrival, to welcome us into his rest with cheers from the angels, not the team, the beings, and with our prize to give us for running well. Are you running well? Run well. We can, we must.
включает. 